Hello and welcome to Lessons Learned with me, Laura Winter. This is the very first episode of my brand new podcast and I am so excited to share this with you and a huge thank you for listening. They say a lesson learned the hard way is a lesson learned for a lifetime. Looking back, I'm sure we can all pinpoint those key parts of life that have shaped us forged our path and made us who we are today. In this podcast, I'm going to speak to star sportsmen and women about the five moments, choices, or indeed in hindsight, the mistakes that have formed the backdrop to their greatest victories and their biggest defeats. The best version of yourself comes from the worst journey you can go on. And we are about to delve into my guests' professional and personal moments, both good and bad, from becoming a parent or winning Olympic gold to getting divorced or losing a race. There are lessons to be learned in every human experience. Now, I am delighted to say this podcast is supported by Airhead. The team have created a truly unique pollution mask for people that love getting active and being outside for their physical and mental health. Active travel and wearing a mask has never been so important. And whether you're cycling, running or walking, this mask offers the most advanced protection. Head over to www.airhead.cc forward slash lessons learned to join the Airhead community and claim your discount. So here we go. Sit back and relax. And if you like what you hear, please hit subscribe so you never miss an episode and leave a review as well. I'd love to hear what you think. My first guest is a legend in the world of Olympic sport, and I am delighted to welcome Sir Matthew Pinsent. Matthew is a four-time Olympic rowing champion, 10-time world champion, two-time boat race winner, turned umpire, and now a BBC broadcaster as well. A former Oxford University student, Matthew went on to become one of the greatest rowers and indeed Olympians this country has ever seen. He retired in 2004 and then received a knighthood in the New Year Honours. At home, Matthew has three children, twin boys and a girl, and is married to Demetria, the CEO of makeup brand Charlotte Tilbury. Matthew, a very warm welcome. How are you? Thank you. Someone's been, uh, I was about to say, reading Wikipedia very closely. <laughs> yeah, I did my research before. Um, Excellent. It's all correct, though. <laughs> Thank goodness for that. How, how are you doing? It's a strange time of year, isn't it? It is very strange. Yes, it feels like it's been going on far too long now. And then a sort of, I mean, you know the rowing calendar well enough, but to have month after month go past with no uh, sort of regular drumbeat of rowing events. Obviously now the Olympics has gone from at least this year. That was going to be a big focus for all of us involved in sport for July and August. You know, Henley came and went. It just feels very disjointed and weird. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're safe we're happy, we're warm and, you know, it, it just is sort of a, a different stage of life. And I was saying saying to my children the other day, do you know what, within a year or two, you're going to be saying, oh, remember that summer where we got to stay at home all summer and there was no summer term? You're going to look back on them and they're like, no, we're not, no, we're not, it's really boring. <laughs> no, that's true. And I think this, this period of time and certainly 2020 and the coronavirus pandemic has shifted perspective, hasn't it? And it's made people aware of what really matters. And, and at that point, sport became a little bit less important one of the most important of the least important things i think yeah it's been a very weird thing sort of robbed of what seemed like you're right relatively 
insignificant things, but we're then really missing. I mean, whilst I don't miss necessarily, I don't need to see boats racing on the river or a lake. You know, you really miss those connections with everyone you're going to see at that event. And and that's the thing that that is really, it's that sense of community, that sense of connection that we're all missing. And that definitely takes something. You know, I'm doing rowing machine by Zoom, which is just sort of weird but it's actually it's sort of fun and you don't do anything other than say you know hi guys how are you and what we're doing and then you row up and down for half an hour 40 minutes or whatever and no one says anything other than the grunting and panting and (laughs) the groaning and the grunting and then you say right see but it's a sort of yeah it's very it is very strange and I think there's all sorts of lessons that we can learn about the way things are going to be going forward um you know lots of people have said before this idea of flying around the world to see people face to face for what might be business meetings fairly dry business meetings you know is that really gonna gonna be the way we're gonna do this going forward i i hope we change lots of things um but that'll be one of them yeah absolutely i love that you dropped in the name of the podcast there as well lessons learned ah there you see. Very on see. yeah yeah totally totally <laughs> trained you well uh, <laughs> I think this has been a period of of reflection for all of us. And that's kind of where this podcast was born from, was thinking back to moments, choices in your life, perhaps even mistakes, things that you have now learned from and perhaps are able in this time to reflect on. So I have tasked you to pick out five moments choices mistakes in your life and i'm asking you now to talk us through them and talk about the lessons you learned what's the first one uh so the first one would be um i wish i had listened to my coaches earlier uh, what a lesson because, for junior rowers. <laughs> yeah, well, well, that was exactly it. And there's something around when you first learn a sport or a skill and the learning curve is incredibly steep, you know, forming the right habits and the right processes around what you're doing is absolutely vital. And particularly as a junior athlete, you're surrounded by people who are there to help and there to keep you safe and there to instruct you and coach you, of course. And yet you're probably least equipped to take it on. I was 13 going on 14 when I first started rowing. And I was quite headstrong and quite opinionated and quite confident, I suppose. And you you just sort of forge ahead and that that sort of trap of a little knowledge and seemingly you know that over overconfidence really what then happens typically and it certainly happened with me is I developed all sorts of habits which I then had to spend years later on trying to unpick um okay and it would have been better if I had not not developed all those nasty habits early on because there's a sort of thing around you know there's a mental pathway if you talk to a sports psychologist you know talk there's a, a mental pathway about the more you do something the bigger the pathway in your head becomes it becomes like a sort of motorway and then to do something another way you've got to sort of turn off the motorway and onto what might be really thick sort of forest or jungle and sort of cut your own path yeah. in, a, in a different way to do it and in order to make that automatic you've got to go that second route so often and so frequently that then it becomes just as easy to travel as the the motorway in your head which is the bad habit and I really struggled with that I really struggled with that later on and I would have been better if I didn't because towards the end of my career I wasn't necessarily trying to make my best bit better I was trying to make my 
worst bits less bad and so that that actually is a very defensive position to be in and a very restrictive in some ways mindset and i just yeah that that would be something i'm i'm sort of fascinated now reading some of the uh coaching theory decades too late you know about what would be ideal that's extraordinary to me though that a four-time olympic champion can say i had all of these terrible habits that i had to unpick so i think from the outside looking in when you've won 10 world championships and you've won four olympic gold medals you seem pretty perfect that was the dominance of GVA. <laughs> oh, oh, what habits are we talking perfect. here? <laughs> I think, yeah, I mean, of course, that's the headline. And it's, it's, you know, it's very difficult to say, oh, I've got these loads of regrets. You know, on any, the, the, there are really big things that I don't have regrets about that lots of people do and have issues with about their sporting career. You know, the biggest blessing and the biggest gift my sport gave me was the way I was able to to leave it at the end. You know, I wasn't injured, I wasn't ill, I wasn't dropped, um, I didn't lose certainly anything, you know, big towards the end. It wasn't it wasn't as if I was forced out of the sport. It was totally my choice when I stepped back. And so there are there are enormous areas which I'm grateful about the way I handled it and the, the the sort of gift. Again, I come back to the thing. It's, you know, yes, partly it was by design and partly it was within my control. But there were the final chapter of the sports career was you know, I would I would never go back and and try and question that or or say that I got something wrong there. And 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 part of that is is me driving it and part of it was the situation that I was in. But you know, there's a the, the break to the perfect career in your to use your words is right you know now what you know, if i if i look at some of the records that we had and some of the performances that we did and some of the physical achievements that i did now you now with two decades of hindsight or more you're thinking right well i wonder what if what about this and what about that and looking at some of the ways that we now we we were sort of of the time you know there are, there are combinations now that 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 are around even now and have sort of come up and gone again in in the time since i've stopped that would have beaten steve and myself hands down and you think well there's a fascinating thought experiment about what would have happened if we'd come up against a combination or a a four of that quality and you know can you ever ever say that was perfect and i just don't think that that's in a sports person's psyche ever to sit back and say i've done it that's perfect you know i can't get any better than that it's just that feels like heresy as it comes out of my mouth i think that's that's very much being a sports person it's both a blessing and a curse to feel that to feel that nothing's ever enough nothing's ever perfect so there's a constant feeling of not enough i'm not enough but equally that will keep you striving for more so it's, it's a balance you've got to strike isn't it and, and and that's something i mean it'll be echoed in some of the points later down my my list that balancing act isn't isn't something that you can ever feel you got right either when you're winning it well when you're winning it when you're living it when you're choosing it because it is a conscious choice about you can't you can't train flat out year round it just it just is impossible and particularly as you get older you know i started my international career you know i was 19 when i first got onto the uh, onto the world championship team i was 21 at the first olympics and then i finished when i was 33 and there's absolutely no escaping the fact that you are a different physical specimen and able to take different training loads you know through your 20s into your 30s you're you're on a plateau by then and it's impossible to say i'm as strong or i'm i can take as much 
pain as I used to. You just can't. And so then you've got to pick your battles. And then if you're into that thing of picking your battles and when are you going to try your hardest, then it's all about sort of moderating that effort and when you're going full throttle and when you're not. And so, you know, that that in itself is a is a sort of maturity in your in your mindset, which as a as an athlete had a career longer than a decade, you've got to get used to that as well. I think it's really lovely though that you can come away from your career, like you said, with no regrets and say, I finished on my own terms, I finished at the very top of my game, weeping on that podium in Athens. Yeah. Yeah. I think that as a sports person is pretty much all you can ask for. And and you know, I read with a degree of sort of concern and empathy about people who finished, you know, even their Olympic career, you know, some of them rowers, um, some of them I know really well, who say they've got regrets and they feel, you know, it's not, it's not hard done by it's, it's that sort of that the, the the space that sport takes in your life that it has to take we've you know you've already mentioned it, it's sort of balancing out you have to let it consume you and then when it's all over you then sit back and think right well was it worth it and that's uh you know that is a very difficult question to answer and 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 some people end up you know saying that they have really bad regrets and that they they wish they hadn't or they wish they'd stopped or they um you know their their performances haunt them or whatever um you know some people have talked about depression and i don't think that's too big a word to use in lots of those cases but i never have ever felt that psychologically about my sports career not not once and and that again is a sort of gift that i'm so grateful for because the adjustment to inverted commas normal life is significant and that's that's true it's challenging for whoever does it whatever you've whatever level you've you've reached in sport but i've never had anything like some of the issues that some some people some of my friends talk about I think filling that void that sport leaves when you're no longer a sports person is, yeah, like you say, a challenge for anyone and certainly a psychological battle. And I know that your second point is around that topic, isn't it? What's your second moment? So the mistake, the mistake I think that we that we made was that we didn't we didn't talk about psychology nearly enough which is fascinating now isn't it because that is so widely talked about within sport now and it it still needs to be talked about more certainly post-sport and in retirement but it's so intrinsic now to being an elite sports person is the sporting mind well we were we were really we were really slow on the uptake one and as you say it's unthinkable now that a an olympic team or an Olympic performer would say, oh, I'm not going to use a psychologist. That is, you know, really, you know, be shocking now. And it was pretty out of the ordinary, I think, when, when Steve and I were doing this in the, in the early 90s, because we knew that sports psychologists were prevalent in other sports. And then the, the rowing team hired uh, a psychologist to work with the Olympic team and lovely guy. And uh, his very first interaction with us was, look, guys, you know, you, you've been around longer than I have in the team. And, I, you know, I'm really happy to set some time aside to work with you together or individually or whatever you like as part of the, as part of the group. You know, let me know how I can help. And um, we were like, oh, thanks. You know, that's great. And I remember he literally, I think it was in a food hall or a hotel dining room or something. And he sort of walked away from us. And Steve literally out of the corner of his mouth said, the moment we need him is the moment we're in trouble. And that just, that cemented our, our approach because... Because that then became 
our default setting, which was psychologists somehow were a sign of weakness, were somehow not going to help. You didn't want to go there. You just created your own mindset somehow. We didn't really talk about it. And, And it slammed the door so emphatically because anyone who wanted to go and reopen it would be like, well, that was the first harbinger of trouble. And you didn't you didn't want to be responsible for that. And so it just, that was a really, it was a really telling sort of exchange because, you know, it, it, it then closed off all sorts of areas of help that actually looking back, I think we could have done with that. You know, we had a massive psychological hurdle in the run into 96 because, you know, we were trying to defend a gold medal and it felt like people were getting closer to us. Whereas in fact, I'm not sure that they really were. There was absolutely no reason to believe why we weren't still capable of winning in the same way that we were in 92. You know, then we were joined by Tim Foster and James Cracknell, who had worked with psychologists before. And it was there. There there was another opportunity for us to say, do you know what, we'll try this. And it was just, you know, totally sort of pig-headed, stubborn. It was ridiculous. And, and, And actually, my feeling of, pressure and responsibility got worse towards the end of my career rather than rather than better and so there were all sorts of things that a psychologist could have helped with all sorts of tools uh, that i would have i would have really enjoyed using or having even if you don't deploy them when it matters most but you know just that feeling of resilience i think was would have been really welcome that's so interesting to hear you say that. Do you and Steve ever reflect on it together? Do you ever say, <laughs> oh, Steve, what were we thinking? Obviously, you work with Sir Steve Redgrave regularly now, and, and you, I'm sure you guys are still mates and chat on the phone. There, are, there so are all sorts of things we reflect on, <clears throat> but psychologists aren't, aren't up there. They are not so up there. Still, it's not there. <laughs> well, it just... Maybe you know now. It, it's you know when we it tends to be we it's it's we don't ever sit down and chew the fat in in great detail about because because it just feels it feels fairly i don't know self-congratulatory or or somehow yeah i don't know it, it, it because we're, we're we're very seldom on our own with time to you know go out, rake over the coals we're always surrounded by you know our wives or kids or both or uh, loads of other people at rowing events you know and so we tend to talk in the we tend to talk about rowing in the in the present tense rather than what we did i mean yeah it's three decades ago which is crazy to think about it time is flying by isn't it yeah it's rowing <laughs> Yeah. Um, your third moment, choice or mistake? So I suppose this, this is really about what would you do if sport didn't work out? And that's something that I have been asked uh, several times since my career uh, finished. And you can answer it now because it's easy to say, well, I'm, I don't know. You know, thankfully, I didn't, I didn't have to think about it at the time. But now I think well, what on earth would have happened? What was my escape route? What was my option B? And I suppose this is connected with sort of what coaches might be saying to you or what your mindset leads you towards. But there was no, there was no room to maneuver in our training environment about professional development or, you know, career planning. It was very ad hoc. It was very sort of left up to you you were you the 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 day was full of training and planning and preparing for the next challenge there was not a lot about right look 
you know, even in this group of, you know, I suppose at the biggest size, we were probably a training group of maybe 30 men, 35 maybe at the beginning of a four-year period. And probably at any given moment, there were probably two who had really nasty, long-running injuries that they were either rehabbing quite seriously for or thinking, look, I need an operation or I'm, I'm just not sure this is so chronic now, I'm not, not sure I'm going to carry on. So there was a sort of living example of someone whose Olympic dream was being taken away from them. And yet there wasn't a penny drop of, right, well, if that happens to me, what am I doing? What would my career path have looked like? And that to me was a, there was no safety net career-wise. And that just seems an extraordinary choice then for a guy in his early 20s who wasn't earning a huge amount out of sport. I mean, I was earning a living and that I still am grateful for because there weren't many of us in rowing who were earning a living out of it. But what was the living going to be if I could never row again? And that, that to me was a, yeah, that would be a mistake. And so, so lots of people come to me and say, oh, I'm thinking about rowing and I'm thinking I'm enjoying my rowing at this level or I want to take it to the next level or I want to which club or which university or what school or, you know, all these sorts of big choices about their rowing career. And part of the advice I always give is, look, you absolutely should go for it because there's a fundamental sort of drive in anyone who's even considering those questions about, look, I want to try this. And that I support because I always think that people need to find out how good they are. That's a sort of, you want to, you want the finality of knowing, even if you're going to fall short of an Olympic team or a world championship team or an international vest or rowing for England or whatever it might be, even to know, do you know what? I gave it absolutely everything and I didn't, didn't work out. That is a, a better way of finishing than, oh, I, I turned away, you know, and went in another direction a lot of times. So I'd always encourage them to try, but equally but in the same breath, I'd say, right, you know, if and when it comes to an end, well, when it comes to an end, because it will for everybody, what's going to be your escape route? What's going to be your, your path out of that? It's extraordinary to think that a sports person at the age of, let's say, 29 comes out of sport and suddenly has to start their entire life again. They've gone from the very top to suddenly not almost being a fresher at university. You know, they're yes. suddenly starting life again. And you studied geography at university, so I suppose you could have become a geography teacher. Everyone always says that. <laughs> I would have been an outstanding geography teacher, thank you. I think you would. Um, I, but... By the time you're, you're right, sort of, I reckon it's about 24, 25 onwards. If you're full-time sport, then your CV, even if you write it up, which I've only done a couple of times in life, it then looks very strange because even if you went to university and finished a degree, which are, again, big jumps and big steps if you're an elite sport, you're probably doing that. The usual time scale for that is 22, 23. Then you've got two years of sport and then you're 25. Your CV is already looking, you've, you've got a funny gap there at the end, which is I'm training for the Olympics. And if you can put the Olympics or put a world championships on the bottom, then okay, an employer is going to be like, okay, that's kind of cool. But then if that goes on and you're 27 and you're writing that CV or 29 and writing that CV or 31 and writing that or 33, then it looks very strange and you are going to stand out in some great ways from the rest of the candidates on the cv pile or as you walk into the room 
but also you've got to be ready then to say, right, well, you know, it's great that you can row a boat or, you know, hit a cricket ball or hit a golf ball or play whatever, you know, but how is that actually going to make a difference in the role that you're now applying for? And those are very simple, very basic questions that you're going to get asked in an interview that you need to have very good answers for. And it, and it might not be that you have the most perfect sort of skill set, but you've got to be able to tell the story. And there are all sorts of attributes that, that sport gives you that are fantastic for employers. You know, you're very, usually you're very coachable. You're fantastic in teams. You take feedback, you know, almost too well. You're a great communicator. You're pretty trustworthy. You're pretty disciplined. You're a self-starter. You don't really care about working hard. You know, I mean, the, the, the list goes on and on and on, but you've got to be able to, you've got to be able to tell that story. And that's, you know, I didn't really have a safety net for my career through my 20s. And it was only sort of to my late 20s when actually I figured out, okay, my CV is now looking really weird. The best way of sort of getting out of this weirdness is, <laughs> is just to carry on doing sport for as long as I possibly can. Because I really, I figured out, look, I'm, I'm just not going to enjoy going to work nine to five or in, within an organization that, you know, I could have joined when I was 22, 23. It's going to be, yeah, that would have been too much of an adjustment. And joining at the bottom as well, not, not going in at the Olympic champion relevant level, but going in as as the yeah new, the but, but but do you know what i mean there are loads of industries that have people cross over from other paths that don't aren't directly compatible but you can get fast-tracked that's true of anything in finance that might be true of you know uh, a sort of um fmcg company it's certainly true in retailing it's you know there's just there are sort of it's a it's a sort of graduate training scheme you know magnified and if you bring your sports person work ethic and organization and focus sort of it's fine i mean you know one of the people that i've seen in the last six months is another fellow ex-row called pete reed who you should you should get to talk to on this podcast but one of the things he said is when he first he had a spinal injury um spinal stroke last year and as a three-time olympic champion is likely going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of his life and you know one of the things he said was he just got himself into a routine and this is very soon after his injury and it was right today i'm going to learn how to sit up in bed or get from the bed to the wheelchair or be able to get the wheelchair to the bathroom and back you know sort of these things which are just what feel like very basic skills but that was what sport had taught him was a mindset of there's a target i'm going to go and do it and i'm not going to stop until i get there sort of thing and those are very transferable skills I've always found Pete so inspiring to talk to. And you're right, I'm, I'm going to try and get him as a guest on this podcast. But even, I think, more so now with how he's dealt with, with the cards that he has been dealt in life, in that he had that spinal stroke and he's gone from being an Olympic champion to being in a wheelchair. It's, again, you know, that plan B suddenly became a plan C, D. It suddenly his life changed beyond recognition. Yeah, it's amazing to see him and hear him in a way i mean i think i interviewed him i mean i spoke to him relatively soon i mean within a few weeks and then interviewed him on camera probably three months after the accident and it was sort of like you know then talking to other people who knew him really well on whatsapp afterwards sort of coming away thinking it's just it's just 
too good to be true. He is just, you know, he is bulletproof about his mindset. But the longer it goes on, you're thinking, no, that's, and and there are all sorts of issues that, you know, you're probably not getting to see. But, you know, that mindset is, is actually one of the pillars that is making him successful and rewarded and feeling like he's got accomplishments and a great, you know, fruitful life ahead of him. Because it's like, right, here's a target off I go, you know, let's crack on. It's sort of a mixture of forces and sport, which he has in spades. Absolutely. Okay, Matthew, so not listening to coaches, um, <laughs> a poor attitude around psychology. Oh, you've, you've, you've nailed these down to absolutely and, right on my gravestone. And no plan B, in, in your no words, a pig-headed yeah. attitude. What's your yeah. thought at the moment? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Blimey, this is damning, absolutely damning. So the next one would be winning should also be fun because I definitely think there were times when we had done really well and it was just straight on to the next thing. Um, And this, to be fair, this isn't necessarily true of Olympics or more accurately, all my Olympics, but I have literally stood on a medal podium, World Championship medal podium with Steve and even before we got our gold medal around our neck, before the medal ceremony had begun, he would be chuntering to me about, oh, I can't believe we did that in the 3500. That was rubbish. <laughs> Can we just get the medal around our neck before we have a sort of, you know, debrief? Yeah. Can we enjoy it for, for yeah. a minute? And I think, again, that, that talks of that culture of nothing ever being enough. And that's certainly something that GB Rowing, again, have in abundance, is that winning is your only option and winning well is, you know, you've got to win well. Because after Sydney, you won that by, God, a foot or something and gave me a heart attack. Yeah. Was there a debrief there where you said, well, that wasn't good enough? Yes, it was Steve's fifth. Yes, it was your third, another Olympic gold medal for GB Rowing. But was it enough? So the, the memory I have about that period of time was broadly amazing and sort of, you know, absolutely cloud nine because that was really the first of the Olympics where Britain did amazingly well. Through the 80s or 70s, 80s, 90s, we were basically winning five gold medals at each Games. Uh, That was certainly true up until 92. Then 96, we only won one. Steve and I were the only one. And it was like an absolute right. Now we need to get this sorted. And the lottery money came online and then the Sydney team went, and came back with 14, I think, which just shocked everybody with how good we were. And we were unashamedly un-British about celebrating it. And, you know, us as a, as a crew, as a foursome, because of the documentary that we did in the run-up to Sydney and because of the attention on Steve to win five, we were right in the, the centre of that sort of maelstrom of attention and celebration, which was wonderful, really wonderful. And I don't, I don't criticize that. And then we were all members of the same club in Henley and at the club dinner. This is the Olympics for September. So the club dinner might have been late November, early December, something like that. And uh, at about two in the morning, I had a great, I mean, that dinner at Leander, you know, that dining room that's sort of packed with 150, 180 people, something like that. And about two in the morning, I'm in the bar, you know, absolutely plastered out of my head. And, <laughs> and Jürgen came over our coach and he put his hand around the back of my neck sort of like back here and sort of 
pulled me in really close. And I thought, oh, it's really important that I listen to what he's got to say here because he's not normally a very emotional guy. He doesn't normally say what's on his mind. And I thought this is going to be massive because Steve was then retiring. It was obvious Steve was finished. And I thought this is going to be magic. I need to cling on to this. And he whispered into my ear, we should have won by more. And I was like, oh wait, what? And he's like, yeah. And he took a beer out and he took a pen and he wrote down all the winning margins between us and Italy, the crew that got the silver. And we had a big discussion at two in the morning at our celebratory dinner about what we tried to do in that race in Sydney and what we should improve for next time. I was just, you know, and that's just, that's just Jürgen. That's why Jürgen, 20 years on, is still going strong, still coaching people, still pushing them to be their best. And I don't, I don't begrudge him. I don't want this to come across as a, as a critique of him. But it, you know, it still strikes me about how much training we did and how the relationship between training and racing, which is like, you know, hundreds to one. And then the racing, when it goes well, it feels like if it's not an Olympics, it feels like it just passed in an instant without you saying, you know, that was really good. We were constantly looking for improvements and constantly saying, well, we won by two seconds. Why didn't we win by three or four? And that, that I think is, it is strange. It is yeah, it is weird. Whether it's a mistake or not, I don't know. Because other people might look at that and just say that's totally laudable and that's exactly what, you know, a high-performing team should do and that's exactly what, you know, repeat gold medalists are like, you know. I, so, but it did. It does strike me now as, as different. It again speaks to the culture, though, that we've talked about, that all-or-nothing culture that I think has dominated your career. And certainly that GB rowing have instilled that is a culture that delivers gold medals. And we've seen that time and time again at Olympic Games since you've retired. Uh, I'm sure we'll see them in Olympic Games to come as well. It delivers medals. And if you survive that culture and thrive within that culture, (laughs) it's a good thing. But you mentioned already that you poo-pooed psychology at the time, which I think was very much of the time. It's, It's, you know, if you did it now, people would perhaps go, hang on a minute. But back then, having a psychologist probably seemed quite quite a strange thing and like Steve said actually something you admit to when you're weak and when you're failing and I think there's something there's something around around a group dynamic which to large extents now you look at some of the some of the dynamics that operated in some of the sports teams of the 80s and 90s whether that's you know the sort of genesis of eastern bloc and the soviet union and 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 that sort of driving towards sports some people are really dismissive about the olympic games as a as a whole entity and and you know is that enough of a motivation is that you know a a, a pure thought and a pure drive you know is that something that should be respected and lauded you know there's a couple of amazing sports documentaries uh that have come out recently which you know i i don't think anyone can watch them you know there's um athlete a which i've watched in the last few days which is obviously just an incredibly abusive toxic relationship with women's gymnastics in in the states and and you know that that really rocks you just to think well those girls and women were driven by exactly the same thing that that we were in exactly the same way and you know it's sort of shocking that 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 existed and you know the michael jordan documentary as well uh, about the chicago bulls in the i mean this is sort of 90s you know okay it, 
it's not not the same degree of control or abuse that's going on in 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 athlete a but you know there are really big questions about oh you know the 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 environment that people would put themselves in under the banner of this is a high performing team and we want to win and so that really makes you think my you know that is exactly what we would have put on the on the tin of our of our crews you know we're a high performing team we're going to be really honest with one another well our drive is always to win we're going to try and win as often as we can and we're not going to let anything stand in the way and you think you know, that's not something I, I, I think in 2020 a sports team or a sports organization is going to put over the door, you know. So it's, you know, that really makes you reflect. It really does. And as a father as well, and I'd imagine a father to three sporty kids, yeah. given who you are and given yeah. the genetics that you've probably passed on, how much of this, and I think this leads us on to your, your final point, Definitely. how much of this do you take on when you're actually being a father being a mentor to your kids <laughs> so i mean that's a that is an ongoing discussion that is and it's absolutely fascinating to me how little of what i felt were really important transfers into what's important for uh you know probably for my kids our kids it was about seven eight nine when organized sport it became more than just playing those first after getting into little school teams or there was a club that you could join after school and you know it began to sort of you know take take steps forward and there are a couple of things that really stand out in the last five years about watching from the sidelines or from the edge of the pool or whatever one of which is around rugby and the rfu did a whole thing about this is now going back about three four years ago where particularly at junior level they stripped out any sense of there's an a team there's a b team there's a c team and there's a d team and everyone gets streamed according to their talent and you're going to put out your best players inverted commas into the top team and you know and then when you go to um a match or a, uh, a sort of festival, you know, rugby festival, there's going to be a pool stage and then the winners are going to go through and there's going to be cut plate and shield and on and on and on it goes and then there's going to be a prize giving at the end. The RFU said for a certain junior level, particularly at club, we're going to do away with that. We're going to have everybody playing. There's going to be no A's, going to be no B's, no C's. Everyone should play ir- irrespective of their talent coming in and... I just thought that's rubbish. What an absolute pile of rubbish. And my daughter and my sons were playing rugby at that stage. They all hated it. But what was fascinating is they now hardly remember that. They hardly remember it. And so the idea of them mixing in with other people and forming a team with whoever turned up on the Saturday morning was actually all about fun, much more than it was about the result. And you just think, that's not what it's all about. You know, come on, right, you need to really think about this. And and this sort of fascinating mixed messaging that we had as parents, which is you'd sort of find yourself on the way over to a match or a swim gala or something. You'd be gently coaching them to think, right, right, what are you going to be thinking about on the starting blocks today? And what's your really goal? What should I look for when you're, you know, doing your tumble turn today? And, you know, all these sorts of, which I thought were really useful because that's really the sort of basics of high performing sports is that you have these things and they weren't interested in engaging that at all. They were absolutely not interested in that. And, you know, my daughter was really the swimmer and she swims at school level and just about club, but you know, nothing higher has absolutely no aspiration to be, to be better than that. The thing that she likes is training. She likes training and 
training in a group and a and a coach who is going to actually she likes being pushed quite hard but competing not her bag and and that to me is like completely round the wrong way you're like no 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 training is really boring and training is really hard and you've got to push yourself but ultimately it's all about racing and for her it's just it's not it really isn't. She she likes the relationship with the coach and being pushed and training in a group where there's a group of girls usually who she really gets on with and actually sort of getting up early and going when it's cold and winter and down to the pool and, and then getting back to breakfast before anyone else is up is, you know, sort of part of it. And I'm like, that's totally weird. That is totally weird. That's totally different to the way I was. So I, I understand that um, though because I, well, I was a swimmer and I used to love training. I loved pushing myself in training. Training. I loved the discipline of it. I loved tossing up the, the amount of mileage and kilometers I did per session yeah. and per week and per month and seeing my times getting better and better in training. And then arguably in, com- in competition, I actually, yeah, I, I couldn't perform in the way that I actually could in training. I've hit PBs in training because the pressure's off and it's fun and you're pushing yourself. Whereas in a competition, it was very much all about you performing in that one moment. And I would yeah. more often than not, not be able to, to handle it, to handle that pressure. Yeah, it, it just has really sort of re-questioned, refocused my mind on, look, what do I want you know, my children and by extension, young people to get out of sport? You know, within three, four years, within three, four hours, you know, who really cares who takes home the little trophy from the under nines, you know, sports day, you know, sort of like, ultimately, is that really what the important thing is? Would my own sports career have been just as enjoyable if we hadn't won quite as much? You know, those are, oh, those are big, big questions. Question, yeah. Those are big questions. And is it appropriate that at the age of 10 or 12 or 14, you've got the same or the beginnings of that performance culture being sort of put into the sport you know and, and that is a I'm really I'm, I'm I'm not a coach for any number of reasons and so you know arguably I I you know I, I, I probably have actually because my boys now tell me to stop coaching them you know they literally they literally will will come over onto the touchline of the rugby pitch and stay and say just stop coaching you know, or stop commentating is the other one yeah, they say stop commentating because I Not say things that. like "oh, good tackle," and yeah, and, and 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 I do it. I do it even, you know, when their opposition makes a good tackle or that, you know, it's sort of like all that sort of constant chatter on the touchline. It's not outwardly, I'm not a sort of nightmare parent and that I'm just there to support them, but it's a sort of version of sports commentary, which is just, and they hate it. They absolutely hate it. So I've had to, I've had to change that mindset as well. Embarrassing your kids. Yeah, there's there's a big part of, I mean, even by turning up, you're embarrassing, but But it's it's just a really interesting challenge about look, what can I remember about my sports career at their age, 13 or 14? Was it in any way linked to what I did five years, eight years later? And arguably, I don't think there's much of a connection there. I think the people who I was coached by and the people I rode with and the way I thought about my own sport, you know, it probably goes against, completely against the point that I thought about point one about being coached, you know, being more coachable and not ingraining bad habits. But, you know, should we let a sort of high performance mindset and constant improvement, you know, trickle all the way down, way down into children's sport? I think that is 
you know, I would immediately say, I mean, 10 years ago, I'd have said absolutely right. But now I'm like, no, I think we should be careful. I think we should be careful for all sorts of reasons. I feel like you're asking yourself quite big questions at the moment and, and learning lessons. <laughs> That's lockdown. That's lockdown for you. <laughs> I know. And learning lessons from your kids as well. Oh, I mean, they, yeah. Well, they don't hesitate to, to say you don't know anything. Um, <laughs> and that's, it's a, it's a sort of, it becomes a running joke where it's about sport or particularly about rowing. Um, not that they really row to any level, but it's, it just is fascinating because you you know uh, the, the, there's, there's an inbuilt sort of pressure meter with me about seeing not becoming a pushy parent you know I definitely definitely don't aspire for them to be elite achievers in sport if that's where they end up then it will be them doing it not me I definitely don't want to be pushing them in certain directions and that's you know in a sports environment that's really all you get asked by other parents is oh would you like them to row would you like them to compete at this would you like them to you know do you ever think about them in an England shirt or whatever 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 and it's just like you know no you know if that's the reason that you're here really like I think you're doing this wrong you're there to introduce your children and support your children into sport as a way of you know all sorts of more generic benefits around teamwork and pushing yourself and a little bit of focus but really it's enjoyment isn't that what we want we want our children to enjoy sport full stop and that's pretty much the end of it and but that is fascinating in how they derive their enjoyment and it and hand on heart i don't see a very strict correlation between the success and the the winning and the enjoyment it's not altogether straightforward and and if i examine uh, my own career i didn't i didn't win an awful lot at under 13 under 15 under 16 was better year under 17 under 18 not really and so actually it wasn't true for me back then and so it's really it's really interesting sort of reverse engineering um what worked for me and then you know, you're, you're, you just get carried away with the, oh, you know, you ended up doing a winning Olympic gold medal. Therefore, everything you did was right and it should be replicated. It's, no, it's a bit more complicated than that. No, you're so right. And I think sport can give us so much. And it does give us so much, whether you're in it, watching it, a fan of it, whatever you're doing. But I think fun, enjoyment, the love of it and the passion of it is, is right up there. We could natter all day, couldn't we, Matthew? Um, I'm <laughs> sorry I haven't seen you at Henry Regatta this year as well. Oh. 2021, here we go. It, it, do you know what? It's just everything is recharging its batteries. Yeah. It'll be back stronger. That's what, we've got to, that's what we've got to believe at the moment is it'll all bounce back extra strong whether it's Henley Wimbledon rugby the Olympics it'll all be back stronger than ever and we'll cherish it all the more because of it absolutely thank you so much for sharing so much of your choices mistakes moments regrets in life and thank you for being my first ever guest on the podcast as well pleasure what an honor is it as episode, an, as one. Much, episode one as much of an honor as a knighthood do you think oh easily more yeah. than more than I'm going to change my going to change my CV now <laughs> yeah get it on your Twitter bio yeah brilliant Matthew Vincent thank you so much I hope to see you soon take care Oh, there we go. A huge thank you to Matthew Pinson, who was just the most brilliant guest and offered such insight into what makes our sporting heroes the champions we know and love. It was fascinating as well to hear that despite this stunning career, he still looks back and pinpoints key moments he regrets and how he is still learning lessons even today. 
Now, this podcast wouldn't be possible without the support of my sponsor. I believe strongly in active travel and protecting our environment, so I am so excited to have teamed up with a brilliant new company, Airhead. Airhead was started in London in 2019 by three friends. The founders are all keen cyclists, much like myself, and while commuting in the city, they soon realised the existing mask market proved hot, uncomfortable and embarrassing to wear, and in some cases ineffective. They quit their corporate jobs and joined forces with a team of expert designers at Brunel University to make radical improvements to pollution masks. With masks now commonplace, why not wear one that will also protect against air pollution? It is estimated there are 64,000 deaths in the UK due to air pollution, and exposure to dirty air is also proven to negatively impact sports performance. Sign up and join the Airhead community for the latest news and an exclusive discount for Lessons Learned listeners. Head to airhead.cc forward slash lessons learned. So that's it, my first ever episode. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget, hit subscribe, leave a review and get in touch on social media as well at Laura C. Winter on Twitter and Instagram. I'll be back next episode with an interview with the fabulous Hugo Monnier. Until then, bye for now.